Jay, what's up? What's going on? <laughs> oh, well, what's going on is you're here. Yay. I'm so excited. It feels great. Yeah, yeah. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, and, and here in the virtual world, unfortunately, we're not in the same room having this conversation. But, you know, it's always cool to be able to do it over sort of the airways, as we say. Yeah, we got to do what we can do to make that a reality someday, huh? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so here I am chatting and I'm sure people who are eavesdropping in on our conversation on the podcast, they're not eavesdropping. They are very welcome. Um, I'm sure they're like, who is Jay Austin? So I'm not going to introduce you. Why don't you introduce yourself? I mean, I hope that's a question that we're all asking ourselves, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So professionally, uh, what I get to do is I'm an advanced communication strategist and I work in three verticals. Uh, I work on campaigns about immigration, refugees, migrants. Uh, I work on campaigns about the environment and accelerating, protecting the environment. And the third is the one that I started in, which is creating messaging campaigns around interrupting mass incarceration. I'm going to start with the one that I met that I met you sort of, right? And I think that was, was that like a hackathon of sorts, if I recall? But I think it was a hackathon around something, but you were talking about, I think, mass incarceration and using technology possibly to disrupt. Just to clear it up, this is how we met. So, because it's a lot cooler. (laughs) So, no, it's all right. (laughs) My bad. (laughs) It's cooler for you. So MIT has this program called MIT Solve. And they partnered up with an organization called Stand Together Ventures Lab to try and find solutions from across the country that could reduce the harm of policing by unbundling it. And so every week we would have two different sessions. uh, And one of those sessions would be with a guest panel or a guest speaker. And you were on one of those panels and you were talking about the intersection of mental health and the criminal legal system. And I was like, damn, I got to get with this person for real. And the session wasn't even over yet. And I, I tried to hit you up. I'm like searching for this <laughs> info <laughs> online and, and I got in touch with you. And the reason why you and I clicked other than just our personalities was I was in the very early stages of working on a concept of prison diversion and reentry program called Relentless. And Relentless is teaching premier level videography, photography, storytelling, you know, production skills to people who are in those uh, situations. And uh, I'm being as intentional as possible in adding a very strong mental health component to that program. And so after listening to you talk on the panel, I knew that I needed to get in touch with you to glean some insight for so many reasons. And so that's how we connected. Okay. So yes, now I, now it is all kind of coming to mind. And yeah. You were like, can I have your email? Or you had already emailed me. How did you get my email already? <laughs> Which is fine because when we speak at those kind of things, the idea is you're supposed to connect with us. That's the exact idea. So uh, glad that that worked. And I think I said um, the hackathon because I've actually done a MIT hackathon too. So I couldn't, couldn't quite remember. Was it a hackathon? What were we hacking? I don't okay, remember. It's just doing MIT this and <laughs> MIT that. Huh? <laughs> so, um, so you were, we, you were part of the ventures lab and, um, MIT Solve, Relentless launched, right? Did did it? Yes. Tell me. Yeah. Okay. I love this idea of using creative ways of engaging people. And Mm. then it's not just about using the creativity, but it's also teaching a skill where, oh, I don't know, you're employable. 
Um, you can be an 100%. entrepreneur, you know, all of those things. So like, yeah, hit hit mm. us up. Tell us all about yeah. it. It's all that cares It's all that, right? Because when, when you catch a record, if you catch a case, uh, one of the top reasons for recidivism, uh, which is being sent back to prison, uh, is because of parole violations. They're not even new offenses. And so if you're on parole and you get hit with a technical violation of that parole, like showing up late to a meeting or missing a meeting with your PO, failing a UA or a drug test, or, and this is a common one, not finding gainful employment within a certain amount of time of being released in a society that tends to not hire people with felony records. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a huge deal. And that for the most part doesn't really exist in the creative and entertainment space. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's part that, but uh, the evolution, the origin actually of relentless was also the first step into this sort of work that I get to do every single day now, which is creating campaigns uh, that are designed to interrupt mass incarceration, you know, with clients mm-hmm. on my own, things like this. So it was, 2017 or 2018. And at the time I was leading a video production team in Kansas city, Missouri, and we had a studio in the arts district and all of us were young, uh, run and gun type creators. Uh, we had like 13 or 14 people at the time. So we were growing really fast and it was like a Tuesday night and it was like 2 AM and we're doing what young creators do on Tuesdays at two. Right. And, uh, smoking, drinking, all this stuff. And I'm sitting in the corner and one of the projects that I was working on was uh, a documentary series that was uh, being produced for the local public uh, television station. Mm -hmm. And that work was a lot different than any of the previous work that we had been working on, which had all been commercial. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was fun and it sent us all over the place, all over the country, all over the world. But uh, it was just commercial stuff. Mm -hmm. So this documentary opportunity came because my brother Nico and I wanted to ask deeper questions and tell different stories, right? Stories about where we come from. And so we got this gig making this documentary and part of the documentary, uh, you know, you have to do research, just tons of research to to get Mm -hmm. a good film together. And that was the first time I picked up a book that I've later learned is like, the Bible, the holy book for a lot of reformers, especially in that era, but is the new Jim Crow by Michelle mm-hmm. Alexander. Mm-hmm. I had that book and I'm reading that. And this is kind of coloring in the picture of that moment that I was sitting in the studio, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm looking around the studio and I realized that like none of the creators that were on our team had necessarily come from where I came from. Mm-hmm. And it just occurred to me that it it wasn't responsible to the narrative, to the story, to ask them to create the narrative or the story, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, man, what would it look like if it were, if there were like more people like me who could shoot or like Nico who could tell the story? Because I, I couldn't shoot. I still can't shoot. And mm-hmm. so, so I'm just thinking, ah, oh, that's really interesting. So I, I have these special notebooks that don't have any lines in them that I keep all my ideas in. And I took out my idea notebook. And I started drawing out this, this sketch for what would later become Relentless. Mm-hmm. Got it. And then I, and I put it away and I put it in my bag. And then two years went by and I didn't do anything on it. Right. I talk uh, about it mm-hmm. like, you know, here and there. But, but that's the thing about ideas, like creative ideas. For me, I treat them like a compost pile. Right. Like that, that's why I really welcome early uncooked ideas 
especially if they're bad. Like I, I, I need all of that stuff so I can put it in the compost bin. And then maybe two years later, something beautiful happens with it. And that's exactly what happened with that idea. So two years later, um, the, the company had evolved in a, a direction where we decided that we weren't going to stay together. And it was actually on my birthday. Uh, I had just signed the papers with uh, the other members of our founding team to split the company. And I'm with my remaining founder, who uh, is like my big sister. She's South Korean. So I call her Nuna. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, she looked at me. It was probably like, you know, five o'clock, six o'clock in the afternoon. And she goes, this has been kind of a weird birthday for you, hasn't it? And I was like, yeah, yeah, it's pretty weird. She goes, let's go grab a bottle of wine. We'll wrap up everything that we got to do for tonight. And, uh, and then we'll call it a day. So I'm in this whirlwind, right? And I'm just thinking about like, what's the next move going to be? I got to transition this person. I got to take care of the lawyers over here, yada, yada. And so I'm in my, my backpack and I'm pulling things out. We're at the next spot and she's sitting there across from me and she's just looking at me like this and she's smiling. And this is, this is a face that Nuna gets when she's about to rock your world with some shit, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so yeah. I'm like peeping out the side of my eyes and she's just looking, I'm looking at her like, what, what, what are you about to say? And she goes, what if you didn't do this anymore? And I was like, what, what do you mean? Of course, we're going to keep doing this. We're, we're on a roll. We're making money. Da, da, da. No, no, no. What if you did that mass incarceration thing? And then she just laid it out for me the like all the reasons why I probably need to make this shift. And it was as if her words was the moment when the storm broke and things cleared and all the chaos that was going on in my mind, the perceived chaos around me just went, that bird started chirping. You know what I mean? Mm, like, <laughs> mm. Who who is this? Who is she? And how do I how do I like, tap into that? I need I need <laughs> her to said. have that face for me on occasion. Hey, That's amazing. I hear, yeah. I hear you. Yeah, she's she's training dogs now. She's one of the best dog trainers in the Midwest because she's oh, wow. like a whisperer. You, you oh, wow. So she started uh, like searching out all these different people and organizations that were in the criminal legal reform field down here in Atlanta, where I am now, and started lining up meetings. And we took a road trip down to Atlanta it was my first like road trip for this purpose down to Atlanta to explore if we were going to make the move. And um, it became just like radically clear that this was something that I need to do. And I need to start this diversion reentry program, teaching these sorts of creative skills. Wow. That is, that is really amazing. And I love how you talked about the compost pile. I was like, yeah, uh, the compost pile, isn't that garbage? But no, it is something that is supposed to sort of regenerate into something new and useful. Um, so that is really, I love that analogy. And, um, you know, hearing the sort of each step of the story, again, is really powerful. You know, the work that I do, of course, is in mental health and working with people primarily to lift up and have um, opportunities for people with lived experience of mental health conditions, particularly those that have been marginalized in, I would say in society, but also in public mental health systems, which yes. tend to look like people like me who are black yes. and brown. And, you know, it's kind of like, oh yeah, that's okay. You guys stay over there and, you know, kind of like, I don't know, you know, really sometimes not just get much better. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I um, always thought, well, there, there has to be a different way. Things have to be better for us and seeing other people getting better. Why can't we get better? Mm. Why are we overrepresented in the mental health system compared to sort of our population numbers, either at the local or national level, something wasn't quite right. So mm. yeah, you know, I like how, 
our ideas are informed by our, our life, you know, yeah. and our life experiences. And so hearing you talk about that is really, really powerful. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And um, I want to add something to what you said. It's not just all the things that you just said, but it's also like y'all get blamed for your condition far more than so many other people. And that that's the same in my field. That's the yes. same in my field. And there's just like such a, uh, an obvious overlap when you just open your eyes and look at it between your work and the work that I get to do as well. But yeah, like you're getting blamed for your felony status. You're getting blamed for having schizophrenia. Like, yeah. Well, and, or you're getting blamed for not getting better as you're getting blamed for uh, recidivism and in the criminal injustice system. Right. Hey, it's you like, feel me? well, you know, if they would just, <laughs> you know, mm. right. And it's like, well, how could you do, if I can't get a job, how am I supposed to like stay in housing? If I can't stay in housing, you know, how am I supposed to help my family or help myself? Like, how can I, how can I change the circumstances if there are barriers in the way that don't permit me to do that? So then, but the person gets blamed. We do that a lot in mental yes. health too. It's like, yes, if you would just take it. your medication, if you would just show up for treatment, if you would just, and it's like, well, maybe if, treatment wasn't an hour away. Maybe if the treatment was something that I actually would like to be involved mm. in and want to be involved in and, and, or you give me the dignity and autonomy to participate with you. And it, maybe I would show up a little bit more, you know, yes. but, um, but it does, it does turn around to a lot of, well, we're trying to fix the person rather than trying to address some of the barriers that uh, create, um, um, the situations for people not to move forward in whatever it is they want to move forward in their recovery yes. in life and, and what have you. So yeah, yes. there are a lot of similarities, a lot of similarities. Yes. Yes. And you know, one of the reasons why I look up to you and admire the way that you move through the world, Karis, is because uh, one of the core principles at Relentless is that we can change the narrative by changing the storytellers. Right. Yes. And so it's not just stories that we're telling other people. These are also stories that we're telling ourselves about ourselves. Mm. And in the relentless sense of the word, uh, we're literally doing it. We're literally changing the people who are telling the stories and shooting the stories. Like when you change the storyteller, we can change the story. It's the quickest way to do it. Um, and we want to try and create an environment that eliminates barriers or equips people to maneuver over around or through them even though it appears only to be about videography photography and and the like and so that's one of the reasons why i admire you is because you are a living breathing walking talking narrative changer just by virtue of what you've been through and what you address publicly almost every day, unless you escape to the beach, which I, I hope you do on a, <laughs> often, you know, so. Um, just don't so, yeah. say which beach, because I don't want people to. I know. Me, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's, yeah, it is yeah. so important. I mean, I, yes. trying to understand who we are uh, is deeply intertwined with just acknowledging what stories have been told about us and what stories we tell ourselves about us. Right. Um, in some regards, we're nothing more than a collection of those things in this biological, physiological sack. Right. And so we have to get them right. We have to get them right and have the, the empathy, the patience and sometimes the courage and toughness to be able to tell better stories about other people mm -hmm. that right. don't divide, that don't frighten, that don't scare, uh, mm -hmm. that don't other. 
Right, right. I mean, this is so, this is where it's like, I'm about ready to cry and I don't want to, because really it's so, (laughs) I mean, it's just so powerful. And I think that's sometimes hard for people to hear or understand when they tell our stories, what that, it's an interpretation. It's an interpretation of what it's like to be me or you, or, you know, live with a mental health condition or be formally incarcerated, you're interpreting somebody's story versus letting them be a part of telling that story. Mm. So it's powerful what you're saying. And I, Mm. and I'm, I'm, you know, as you're doing this work, what is it looking like for, for you, as far as people getting it and you being able to advance this idea of using and utilizing people, uh, you know, who have been formally incarcerated? How, how's that How's that working out for you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, at this very moment on this very day, uh, it's working well. So mm-hmm. we have launched the fundraising campaign, which is where a lot of the conversations around this happen, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, we launched that in 2021 on June 17th. And the diversion program, which for, for listeners who may not be familiar with the term, diversion happens before somebody is incarcerated. So Say that you get picked up and you go in front of a a court and the judge or the prosecutor is basically like, nah, you don't belong in jail. We got this program, da, da, da. Most diversion programs have to do with either treatment, especially if there's a substance use disorder involved or perceived SUD involved, Mm -hmm. or it has to do with, you know, a very specific program in terms of like, like, okay, so you were driving 25 miles an hour over the speed limit in Missouri with a person in the car. That's a pretty high level offense, but we're going to send you to driving school and then when you complete the program, drop mm-hmm. the ticket, da, da, da. Um, so it's like specific to the, the case that they caught. But ours in Kansas City is hopefully going to be launching this year in 2022 in the fall, specifically mm-hmm. focused on 16 and 17 year olds, which mm-hmm. the system at least in Kansas city, Jackson County, they label them as emerging adults. And so what's interesting is the people who get this the most in Kansas city is actually the family court system that I'm getting to work with. Mm -hmm. So it's people, it's operators working within the system who understand that not only is the system broken in some places, but more often than not, it's tailored to do the thing that it's doing and it's doing the wrong Mm -hmm. thing. So mm-hmm. we can rework the damn thing, right? Without having to fix nothing, right? <laughs> like I say, okay, right. well, we meant to do it that way the last time. So let's meant to do, let's mean to do it this way this time. Right. And right. so they've actually become some of my biggest advocates for the diversion program. But I will admit that having these conversations about first, second, third, fifth, 10th chances for juveniles is a lot easier to have with people who tend to have trouble with this idea of, decarceration or working with people who are fresh out. Mm-hmm. Once they get fresh out, all these other questions start popping up. Well, what were they in for? What was their crime? Are you only going to be working with nonviolent offenders? What about drug <laughs> offenders? You know, and mm-hmm. the common understanding of those types of folks in those types of situations is does not actually coincide and reflect what the research says about those folks, uh, which is that people who are convicted of violent offenses and serve time for violent offenses tend to recidivate less when they get out than people who were incarcerated for crimes of poverty, which tend to be nonviolent offenses. Mm-hmm. Prison mm-hmm. didn't make wow. you richer when you got out, fam. Like, <laughs> yeah. so that, that like, 
those crimes of poverty are going to still exist in the environment that they release to. And it's very difficult to get out of that. There's a whole bunch of people in the middle class who can't get out of the middle class. Mm-hmm. So you see the, the where the trail yes. goes there. Right. Yes. But violent people convicted of violent offenses often age out. They, I mean, this is what the research is showing, public health research, criminology research. This is what research is showing is that people tend to get less violent as they age in mm-hmm. general. And so those are the folks that I want to help most um, because they are the most marginalized within a marginalized population. And so by helping them the most, we can help the most people, mm-hmm. even if they weren't mm-hmm. the ones convicted of the violent offenses. But it's easier to talk about the redeeming qualities of 16 and 17 year olds versus mm-hmm. 27, 39, 42, 54 year olds. Right, right. right. I totally hear you. That's that's really <laughs> kind of interesting. Again, the parallels are so striking in mental health as we're doing mental health reform. Everybody's looking at crisis, 988, crisis reform. The the thing that was that, that was really striking for me is I I sometimes have to step back from being in the middle of the work that I'm involved in, like mm-hmm. step back and look at it from the outside in or from the edges, as Kurt Vonnegut would say, like you have yes. to go back and look at it from the edges. As I stood back and I looked at what I was in the center of and now what I'm on the outside of and what we're trying to fix and how we're trying to fix it, I said to myself, this is really interesting we're, we're wanting people to be, uh, you know, get the treatment and services that they need. And we're making them maybe, maybe thinking of people as getting better. But I noticed that there was this arrow that's back to community. So, so maybe you go through hospitalization, or maybe you're in a residential setting, or, you know, or maybe you're even in community mental health, and you're living in your community. And I had to ask myself, but a lot of people who are in public mental health, are in public mental health because one of the criteria is poverty. Mm. So when we are supporting people to get to their wellness and, you know, helping them reintegrate, integrate, whatever we want to call it in community, are we addressing poverty? Mm. And we're not. And so a lot of times the stressors and the things that can exacerbate somebody's symptoms have to do with the fact that they don't have money right? Because they don't have access to do many of the things that they would like to do, um, that they actually do want to work, but maybe because they're on disability, working is restricted how much you can earn because, well, you got to be in poverty, right? Mm -hmm. We have to be Mm -hmm. a percentage of poverty. I thought, well, wait a minute, are we, are we perpetuating a problem? Are we really fixing a problem? Are we, what are we really doing here? Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you, when you talk about this related to, you know, people who have been formerly incarcerated, especially for for crimes that have to do with poverty, and we haven't fixed poverty. Mm. Well, wait a minute, what? Mm. (laughs) You know, and I know that's a super duper Mm -hmm. big ask, like fixing poverty. That's like saying, uh, could we have world peace? I get it's a really, really (laughs) big ask. But I think we still have to keep that as part of the equation, too. Yes, yes. Oh, I'm, I'm so with you on that. I'm so with you on that. This is, by the way, how I get to communicate with people who are a little bit more conservative than I am, um, especially when these good-hearted people come to me and ask, like, how can they support decarceration? Because we're living in this very fascinating moment of time, this window of time where there is common ground on a topic like this. And 
Uh, people see economic approaches to it, like some that you're talking about or referencing to. Others see social justice approaches to it, which is which tends to be my lens. But my job is to decarcerate. When we're talking about this stuff, it's interrupt the cycles that lead to mass incarceration and decarcerate actively. So as as often as we say things like formerly incarcerated and da da da, this is a community that we're really focused on now collectively. But I'm also thinking about the about to be incarcerated people, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's not stopping, especially if you're an immigrant, for example. I mean, hyper vulnerable to incarceration and deportation and no representation by a lawyer. Only 13% of the people of immigrants who get caught up in the deportation system are represented by a lawyer. That's, that's so wild. That's so wild to think about. Only 13%. Yeah. Um, citizens have representation that's constitutionally given to them thanks to a case called Gideon versus Wainwright, but not immigrants. So I think about about to be incarcerated. I think about formerly incarcerated people. And from an economic perspective, when somebody asks me, especially people who are more conservative or even libertarian folks, when they ask me how they can get involved with decarceration, one of the first questions I ask them is, are you in a position to hire anybody? Yes. And if they are, right, if they are like the leader of the business, upper level management, working in HR at any level, then the answer is yes. And then my response is invite people with criminal records and review them like any other applicant. And, and that first part is critical. The first part is critical. There, there are a lot of movements that are talking about banning the box on applications, mm-hmm. right? And so for listeners to fill them in, like sometimes there's a box on applications that's like, have you ever been convicted of a felony record? Da, 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 da. And if you didn't check the box, but you do have a felony record, then that's oftentimes a felony offense, depending on where you're at in the country. Anyways, so there's a movement to ban that box. But what that tends to do is just push the issue further into the interview process. And eventually, after running a background check, that person looks even more suspicious because <laughs> they they now have a criminal record early. So uh, if people are in a position to hire, I draw the direct and indelible line between recidivism and uh, economic opportunity. And I say, ask, like invite people with records. You not only will you be flooded with talented applicants well, you will add an entirely another dimension to your DEI efforts, a, an entirely another dimension, right? Right. So right. oftentimes the things that keep people from going back to prison are the exact things that were needed to prevent them from getting incarcerated in the first place. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about the economic aspect of this, the poverty aspect of this, the community reintegration aspect of this. Almost all of those things were absent prior to most of these people getting locked up. Mm -hmm. And so if we can really solve it for this back-end problem, but keep an eye on a more upstream solution saying, oh, this is also, these are also preventative measures, then we're going to start to see these numbers go down, but we have to take active steps at literally every level. And that includes hiring people who are coming out. 
Yeah. But, but the other piece is, you know, recognizing that people with mental health conditions do want to work. It's so funny when I was running a peer run organization, I was so, well, we don't know what to do with this person. You know, they have lots of, okay, I'll just, I'll just use the words that we use with me, lots of obsessions and lots of compulsions. Mm. I was like, oh, okay. And I said, well, I don't really care about that, but they'll have to tell me what that means to them if they want mm. to. So kind of in talking with them, I realized I need this person to do our books. This mm. person is going to like check and double check. We'll triple check. We'll check with me yet again <laughs> to make sure that everything is right. I'm telling you, the books never look so beautiful. Right. And I'm not look so beautiful, <laughs> but we're accurate. So I mm. actually saw what somebody was seeing as a deficit as actually that person's strength. It's like, oh, why? I've been watching way too much. Is it Netflix, Bravo, something, you know, say yes to the dress, say yes to, <laughs> to you know, the applicant and make sure that um, applicants know, as you're saying, that you are looking with intention for people who have different backgrounds. Yes. Because otherwise people sometimes are afraid to apply, you know, don't know what they're supposed to be doing when they apply. Um, but, but I think, you know, sometimes people just won't apply because they, they're afraid that they're going to be dismissed because they have a background. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. yes. And Karis, you know, that's one of the first things that we do in, uh, we don't call it programming, we call it routes. So when one of the participants, and I'm using air quotes, when one of our participants comes into the, the route, uh, within the first week, one of the things that we do is we redo their mugshot. And so they have a professional headshot taken of them. Mm -hmm. And that is the first small step in the narrative change internally for that person. So they had been called everything up to that point, depending on when they got locked up and what they did, they may have been called a super predator. They may have been called a drug dealer. They may have been called a criminal, a violent criminal, a felon, a model inmate, inmate number five, two, so da, 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 Mm -hmm. parolee. And as soon as you step into our route, into our program, you're called a creator with a capital C. And that's the first step in that sort of change. But one of the intersections between your field and mine is this one. There was some research that came out in 2020 uh, from the East Coast somewhere. I can't remember exactly which state, but it took a look at a large population that had spent any amount of time in solitary confinement in their prison system. And it looked at the mortality rate of that population upon their release. And what that study found was that literally any amount of time in segregated housing or solitary confinement increased the mortality rate of that individual by more than 20%. And that was due to either murder, suicide, some sort of overdose. And uh, on top of that, the mental illnesses that they may have been carried, any condition that they had was exacerbated Mm -hmm. and many new conditions were created thanks to any amount of time Mm -hmm. in segregated housing. So this came out, uh, I think it was 2020, might have been 2019, but in 2020, the world shut down and we experienced a de facto solitary confinement in every carceral unit in the United States. And these people, 98% of people who get incarcerated get released. So where are we ready for that? We're Mm -hmm. not ready for that, that sort of avalanche of potential increase in mortality rates 
or decrease in wellness and mental health with this population, which again, with this population, if we can get it right for them, we can get it right for so many people. And so that's, again, I guess why I reached out to you at that time, because I was like, yes, it's about cameras. It's about flashes. It's about stories. I need us to have a strong mental health component, but we don't have to be running a diversion program or a reentry program to be thinking Mm -hmm. about strong bedrock mental health and wellness components in your organization. Exactly. Okay. I never say amen, but I'm about ready to say amen. How did I go to church all of a sudden? I'm not a church goer, but I just went there. Um, so, and, and the, the reason I, this is, this is, as you keep talking about, you know, when you do, when you do it for this group, it actually helps everybody. That's sort of the essence of quote unquote universal design. If we want to use that kind of language, right. Meaning Absolutely. that if, if you, you know, as you said, like the curbs, when they, when they took the sidewalk and the curbs and they cut them out so that wheelchairs could could use them. Well, how many other people did it really help, right? Even though it was really kind of an ADA, um, you know, thing and and an accessibility thing for people in wheelchairs that help, you know, moms with strollers that help people who can't step up on something. It just, it was just like, okay, wait, this is mind boggling. So, um, so yeah, it's kind of like, don't think of it as this is for them as if somehow the othering of it all, you know, It's, it's not the othering. We all have mental health and we all want to be mentally healthy. So what can organizations do? what can systems do, what can communities do, what can families do, what can schools do to help people, everybody be mentally healthy? Yes. Yes. And I think one of the very first steps is asking the right people for their input. Mm -hmm. Lived experience, baby lived experience. Oh yeah. Unbelievable. You know, um, I have a client and a friend who uh, got out in 2018 and he's just started speaking more and more at corporations um, and small groups during DEI conferences, whatever. And he had this uh, presentation earlier this week at a company that really does walk the walk. They're in the financial industry, but they walk the walk in terms of supporting people who are trying to elevate their status financially, but also uh, addressing things that are societal problems, police brutality, black ownership in business or black unownership in business, things like this. And they, they do walk the walk. He went in there and he's a very powerful speaker who works incredibly hard at his craft. And he delivered this presentation and he was making people in that room cry, mm. walk out, leave and unveil things in front of their coworkers and their CEO that never ever would have come out because the environment wasn't set for it. Mm-hmm. Even the company that was doing everything right just needed that one person mm-hmm. to come in on that one day to deliver that one thing. And all of a sudden the entire company is better for it. They're wow. more aware of each other, right? Mm-hmm. They understand this and that they understand. Wow. And both of her parents are incarcerated. She shows mm-hmm. up every day and smiles. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like these yep. sorts of things um, start to unveil themselves when you take that very simple step of asking and inviting the right people to speak up and speak out about what their life has been like, and then yeah. come with suggestions on how to make it better. Yeah. Yeah. And I think on this, like you've unveiled a lot uh, in our, in our chat today. And I want to thank you so much, Jay, for joining me on Unapologetically Black Unicorns. I love talking to you. I could go on and on and on, but we're going to end here. Maybe we'll have a part two, Uh, (laughs) but thank you. Thank you so much for joining today. 
Yes, thank you for the privilege and for giving me the platform for a little bit. Sure thing. And to our listeners, remember to join in next week to Unapologetically Black Unicorns.